Go ahead and turn to Lamentations 3. Lamentations is right after the book of Jeremiah, um, written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah is um, beholden to this, he's witness to this whole uh, orchestration of events where God has judged Israel and the southern kingdom Judah by sending Nebuchadnezzar to bring destruction and then basically haul them off to Babylon. So keep that in mind as you read Jeremiah lamenting over what he's seeing. So Lamentations 3, 1 through 26. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell, like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. <laughs> Who talks about God this way? He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I've become a laughing stock to all my people. They're mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth or ground my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he awaits, that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and good God, our faithful God, we are happy to be here together to sing, to pray, to confess, to look at your word, to fellowship with one another and give you the glory. It is good and right that we do this because we know that apart from Christ we can do nothing. So we need you together, Holy Spirit, to infiltrate our minds, our emotions, so that we will not be carried about by every wind of doctrine. And we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. It was G.K. Chesterton who once stated that the trend of good is always towards incarnation. The trend of good is always towards incarnation. By this, he simply meant that the indescribable should become describable. The unutterable should become utterable. Chesterton was mostly talking about arts and philosophy, um, and, and art should be revealing, not concealing, that type of thinking. But I kind of want to take that principle a step further and say and suggest this. I'm convinced and I believe that the trend of history is always towards greater revelation. The trend of history is towards greater revelation. So the, the incar when we consider the incarnation of the Son of God, right, the Word of God who took on flesh, 
that's a remarkable feature of Christian theology. There's literally nothing else like it in all of the world's religions. There's nothing like it. God himself taking on flesh. But what I find fascinating about that fact that God became flesh is that it's absolutely consistent with his plan of self-revelation in history. The, his, it's consistent with God's self-revelation in history. Why, right? Why not send himself? <laughs> um, God is always moving history along towards greater revelation, greater luminosity, greater glory. That's, that's the pattern of history. He is taking man, we could say, along the road called Revelation, and along the way there are stops of sanctification, stops of holiness, stops of illumination. That's the trend and the trajectory of history. Um, so, of course, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Of course, that's, that's, that's God. That's like Him. So, greater light leads to greater revelation, which leads to greater clarity on the path to greater glory. And this is Vantillian thinking with regard to what I said earlier, epistemological self-consciousness. You know that you know. You don't not know that you don't know, right? There's like this unconscious knowledge versus conscious knowledge and all these the, the debates about how you know things. But the point is, man, we're supposed to grow in knowledge. We're supposed to, um, by God's Spirit, mature and what we know and how we think and how we function. So that's greater light leads to greater revelation, which leads to greater clarity on the path to greater glory. So all of this, all of this in what we could say, all of redemption, the history of redemption is a movement from wrath to grace. Okay, so this, that's why we call it grace, right? It presupposes wrath as a condition. So, as we've already covered, man, we know, was created in the image of God, but he forsook this glory and traded it in for another glory, one that he wanted to define. Man is always on a path to glory, whether they're standing outside of a club, whether, wherever they are, whether they're going to their job. We are glory hungry. We are glory seekers. No one escapes that reality. But this glory, though, that Adam and Eve wanted, turned them basically turned out to be the equivalent of exchanging what you could call the king's banquet with all the food and everything you want, exchanging that for the crumbs from a servant or slave's table. That was the trade-off. They thought the crumbs were better than the feast. Adam and Eve, they believed themselves, in that moment of rebellion, they believed themselves to be completely free to explore the selfish desires of their hearts. So obviously, instead of trusting God with their emotions, their desires, their feelings, their will, their thoughts, right, and their actions, they trusted the serpent and they brought absolute wreckage to the human race. So what started as a moment of grace quickly became a moment of wrath, and thus history moves from wrath to grace, or fallenness to restoration, you could say. So at the center of all this is the fact that the that part of the wreckage of sin is the emotional scarring that takes place in life. I bet all of us in this room, if we think just for a moment, all of us have had emotional scars. When you're toddlers, you fall down, you scrape your knee, right? That happens. But as you grow, all of us have things that happen in our lives that scar our emotions. It affects how we think about ourselves. It affects our self-image. Right? And, and, and it affects us in ways, frankly, we don't even really know. 
and it affects our physical body. There's all these things tied to sin, the fall in Adam. So we have very much what we can call emotional baggage fees. Their plane was on my mind, so I thought it'd be cute to say emotional baggage fees. Because <laughs> they cost a lot. It's expensive. Having emotional baggage is expensive. It's expensive to you. It's expensive to others. Because it's always a debit from the account. It's rarely a credit. It can be a credit. But a lot of times it's a debit, especially when we give ourselves over to sin. So we have things like depression and anger. We have things like lust and we have things like sadness. We have all these things. These things weigh us down. Oftentimes they erode at us to such a degree that we simply cannot function. The man with lust and addiction is slowly eroding away. In fact, you can even look at some of those studies with regard to pornography. Um, it's the functional equivalent of being on cocaine. Um, your brain shifts. The chemicals in your brain um, move away. It's, it's a legitimate addiction. So we have these categories, these things that are a result of sin, and it scars us, it weighs us down, and frankly, we end up throwing our baggage around at each other and hurting others in the process. Now, this baggage obviously can crush us, just like Jeremiah described here in Lamentations 3. We can be afflicted, verse 1. We can be driven to darkness, verse 2. Um, verse 4, he describes this utter debilitating disease. His flesh and skin waste away. His bones are crushed. Um, we can feel isolated and alone, right? We can be weighed down as though we're tied by chains. He says that in verse 7. Uh, our emotional baggage can make us feel as helpless as the prey of a bear or a lion, he says in verse 10. Sometimes it's so weighty to us that it feels like everyone around us is mocking us, he says in verse 14. Um, and thus we're, of course, filled with bitterness as a result, verse 15. Have you ever felt so terrible in your life that the only way to describe it is in terms of your teeth grinding on gravel? That's what Jeremiah did here in verse 16. So the Bible is absolutely filled and it's full of emotional experience and expression. And I think we would do well to acknowledge it, right? We already talked about Jesus with the whip in the temple. Emotional expression is all over the Bible. Um, we'll get to this in the last week of this, in week five, but when we talk about especially depression and the, the feeling of depression, it is all over the pages of Scripture. Um, it may not use some of the modern psychological terms, we might say, um, in those categories, but it's there. Now, <clears throat> we know as Solomon taught us, there's a time for everything under heaven, right? Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. There are times we have to grieve. There are times that we're going to rejoice. There are times we're going to experience elation and joy, right? When you get that job offer, you get a raise, or, or the announcement of a new baby being formed and knit together in the womb, like these wonderful experiences of elation and joy. But then there's other times of true and utter despondency where you're completely debilitated for tons of reasons. It could be physical reasons, emotional reasons, you name it. Now, while it is true that there is a time and place for those things, this doesn't mean that experiencing emotion is a bad thing in and of itself, and thus the difficulty. I'm, I'm mentally preparing myself and emotionally preparing myself for what is functionally a five-hour church service in Africa where they sing four, and, four hours and 30 minutes. 
and they dance and then they want you to dance and I'm super white so I don't dance <laughs> and uh, but they like I have some video I, sh I mean I, I'll have to show you but it's quite it's uh, the emotion is not hidden there <laughs> and uh, it stretches me because here I am you know super tall super white super awkward with a suit on and they're like you know just walking around and yeah so <laughs> So emotion is not a bad thing. It should be an expression. It, we should embrace them. Again, as we talked about in week one, we are whole we're whole people, we're whole persons with whole bodies, and we have a whole gospel that's going to deal with all of it. And this means that our emotions are supposed to, now I want you to catch this, our emotions are supposed to work in concert with the rest of our faculties in order to bring glory to God. So it's that balance between don't, you know, stuff your emotions, right? We're not to elevate the mind or the brain over our emotions or the heart. That is a major, major problem. We're made in the image of God, which means we are thinking and feeling and doing creatures. Now, to exalt one of those qualities, one of those faculties, um, over against what we would say is the equal ultimacy of all those features together, you're basically repackaging Greek philosophy and you're calling it Christian. And it's not. It's most emphatically not Christian thinking. And the, reform cr um, the Reformed crowd is um, superiorly guilty of that. We are, um, we are very good at elevating the mind over the emotions. So Satan's great plan, we know, was to read the redirection of man's worship, right? The redirection of man's emotion, the redirection of man's ambition, the redirection of your affection from God-centeredness to self-centeredness. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question number one, it says, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer is, right, we know man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. So when, we, when the object of our pursuit of glory and enjoyment is something or someone other than the God of the Bible, then we obviously have found ourselves worshiping and exalting an idol. And, and that happens all the time. So all of our worship, all of our affections, all of our obedience, all of our work, all of our actions, all of our thinking, all of that, our love and desires, are supposed to be God-focused. So kids, your emotions and how you feel and how you think and as you get ready to um, you know do co-op work and you, you know we're getting into the fall season and summer is coming to a close as you think about all that you have to do each day remember that your task is to be God focused which means that all of your anger which you have adults we have anger we all have anger issues right we that our anger is supposed to be God focused yeah you're supposed to have a How's that for it? You know, we talk about gospel-centered things. How about God-centered anger? God-focused anger. All of your depression and your despondency and your sadness, all of your joy, all of your frustration, all of your happiness, all of it is to be used to the great end of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. That's your highest aim. And the Bible says a lot about this. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Romans 11.36 We were bought with a price which means that we're supposed to glorify God with our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6.20. Um, one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, or we can add emote, you should do it for the glory of God. Right? All the nations God has made will come and bow down before the Lord and glorify His name, Psalm 86.9. 
um, our pursuit of knowledge, our pursuit of understanding, which we know starts with a fear of God, right? Proverbs 1.7. All of that must be to the end of walking in, in God's truth with an undivided heart persistent on revering God's name. I'm quoting scripture, that's Psalm 86.11. So our aim in life in all of our thinking and all of our feeling and all of our doing must be the path of life which leads us to the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. I was busy this week searching for all these passages about glory. There's a lot of them. Which is all to say our glory-giving purpose includes our emotions. So if God is moving history along to greater glory, greater, greater clarity, we can rest assured that our emotions are part and parcel to this goal. So God wants our emotions to glorify him, right? So whether you're happy, if you're joyful, right? Um, you kids ever get a, at a um, there's like a toy you want or a thing you really, really want, right? And then like you get it, maybe it's your birthday or around Christmas time or something, you get it. How happy do you feel? happy right like super happy super joyful i can't believe this thing that i wanted is in my possession it's mine my brother and sister can't take it so in that moment though you can be tempted to turn that glory on yourself you instead of giving the glory to god right so god wants our emotions to glorify him don't stuff them correct them okay practical thing you don't stuff them correct them um, don't ignore them. Contextualize them. We are so prone to exalting the mind that we are so busy, uh, well, sometimes we're not, but we should be busy thinking, where am I th where's my thinking gone wrong on this? Uh, you're assessing a situation. You're assessing a marital dispute, uh, a dispute with a child or a friend, or the, the situations happen, and we assess in our minds often, where is my thinking wrong? Right? We grow in our understanding of apologetics. We grow in our understanding of theology. We grow in our understanding of all these things. And we spend a lot of time trying to analyze in our, in our brains where we're not thinking correctly. Do we put the same amount of energy into where we're not feeling correctly? So don't immaturely wallow in your emotions. Grow them. Grow them with patience. Grow them with practice. Now, before we move on, I just I think it's important to have a kind of a working definition of what we're talking about. So here's, in short, my definition. Emotion is simply the soul's way of construing or interpreting a situation. It's the soul's way of interpreting or construing. How do you, you find yourself with a situation? How do I process it? Well, emotions are well, how you do that. See, when a person has concerned himself with a particular thing, the body responds in what we can call somatic and psychosomatic ways. Soma being the Greek word for body. Somatic ways are simply like physiological things. You ever had like debilitating anxiety <laughs> where you're like in your gut, you're like stressed and you feel it? I remember going to the ER years ago. I was having a panic attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was like 24 or five or six, somewhere in there. And it's like, and in my mind, I'm thinking, why do I feel this way? And it's like this battle of anxiety, of like this crippling feeling of stress, and you don't know what to do with it. 
those are somatic things. But then there's psychosomatic things, right? Things that are pertaining more to your mind and your thinking. So in other words, when you experience something, a situation, it could be traumatic or not, whenever you're experiencing something, you have feelings which lead to emotions, which leads to then action. So and this involves obviously material and non-material things, non-material metaphysical things, um, aspects of our body, right? You, you, can, you can pinch someone's skin. You can't pinch their happiness. See, feelings, feelings tend to be our immediate perception of something. And oftentimes feelings are like, we think of it in like a binary fashion. You have some things are good, some things are bad, right? Some of you really like pineapple on your pizza. Some of you think that's sinful. <laughs> so that's your, just, that's your like feeling on it, right? <clears throat> something's hot, something's cold, and you can tell the difference because you felt it, right? Uh, sense perception, you know, touch, feel, taste, smell, that stuff. And then there's things that are fun and not so fun, things that you find engaging, and then some things you're like, no, that's a terrible experience or a terrible time. I would never want to do that. So feelings, there are usually our immediate sense perceptions of what is taking a place around us or taking place in us too. So oftentimes people will say, well, feelings and emotional, feelings and emotions, they're, you know, that's a synonymous thing. They, they're the same thing. Well, I don't think so. I think they should be distinguished, and here's why. Feelings, you might say, are the prerequisite to emotion. They pave the way to a deeper, more pervasive experience of something. So let me illustrate. It's one thing to see something bad happen in a situation, recognizing that it is truly bad. It's a completely different thing to go through that situation yourself. For example, seeing a car accident versus being in one yourself, right? Major difference, seeing an accident and traffic slows and everybody's gawking. What happened? We saw a couple of years ago, this RV pulled over the side of the road near outside of Philly on fire. Well, it was already burned up at that point. That's quite an impressive sight, but it wasn't my RV. <laughs> it wasn't mine. See, emotional, emotions usually do two things. One, they arise in order to help us respond to something, or two, they help us to be prepared. So, you know, given the complexity of the human body, we can be assured that no one really knows where the metaphysical meets the physical, right? We don't actually know where our particular emotional experience meets the physical trauma and anxiety that we experience in our gut. So when, when you're depressed or down and sad, you, you feel it in your soul, but you can feel it in your actual body too. And that's because we're whole persons. And we don't know where that meets. There's, it's inexplicable. You can't, you, there's no way to know. See, emotions are given by God and they are truly a wonderful gift. Listening closely to your friend describe the turmoil that she's currently going through, that she's currently experiencing, should help you to be empathetic in your response. There's a connection there, right? So, but remember, emotions prepare us for action and they help us respond to an experience. So your empathy in responding to someone, I think it's a wonderful gift, something we should probably use more. But emotions are not neutral. They will either serve the end of glorifying God or they will not, which means that emotionally, emotions can be sinfully positioned. So your friend might be sharing her feelings on a particularly difficult situation she is experiencing. Same friend. 
And instead of listening and being a good friend, you might whisper to, to your mind and then to your other friend later on. Well, she brought this on herself because she's too stinking stubborn, right? I can't help her. See, sinners tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against, right? But that's because sin is always crouching at the door. But it's also true that sinners can respond sinfully to not being sinned against. You can sinfully respond when someone didn't sin against you. See, depending on our emotional intelligence, our emotional maturity in the moment, we, ne- we may not be able to actually help our friend and be a good listener because, for example, maybe we're too busy criticizing her and trying to fix her. Again, there is a million examples. And so for the sake of the argument, you may be right. Maybe she is an extremely stubborn person. <laughs> maybe your legitimate assessment, that, that's a legitimate assessment. But gossiping and whispering isn't going to help the situation. Be a good friend, not a whisperer. Proverbs says a lot about whispering. Proverbs 16, 28 and 18, 8. Now, emotions are complex instruments. Children, you have emotions. They're difficult. They're complex. Sometimes it's hard to express them because vocabulary isn't there. You can, in a single moment, experience a rush of emotions. I, th- I remember the first time I ever stepped on, on African soil. This was like 2009, 2008 actually. Um, excitement, you know, nervousness. Oh, I can't believe it. I'm on another continent. I've never been on another continent. You know, but then there's like uncertainty and feelings of unsure, you know, being unsure about the situation. It's very much possible to have mixed emotions. And that's because we are persons who come from the person, right? God is the absolute personality. God thinks, God feels, God acts. Jesus himself had mixed emotions oftentimes. But the way we deal with the complexity is developing the maturity and self-control needed to understand them, which means then we can wield them properly. So we want, in other words, we want to use our emotions, not have our emotions use us. So the purpose of emotions is really quite simple. I'll give you four things if you're a note taker, here you go. But God has given us emotions, one, in order to communicate. Emotions are ways we communicate with each other, especially things that are important to us, right? Two, it's to aid in relating to one another. Um, Lest we become like Spock and just walk around with mind-numbing factual information and no empathy, right? No emotion. So communication, relation, and then, of course, it moves us to righteous action. Emotions move us to action in the world, right? We should, we should feel the weight of injustice that moves us to action in some fashion. In a billion other ways, you can be moved to action. And, of course, lastly, it helps us worship God. So communication, relationships, movement, action, and then worship. Um, the essence of man isn't emotion, but we have emotion. We're whole persons. But we're to have emotions in godly ways. See, sometimes we need to express what we value, which means emotions can be used to communicate what we think or what we feel. Other times we need to be able to relate to one another. And again, since we're not heartless robots, we need emotion to deepen our experience with one another. You don't know someone until you've cried with them. Really. You don't know someone until you've walked through trauma together. Uh, I mean, there's layers to it. 
you know, some people describe it as like the front door versus the living room versus the kitchen table, like the intimacy level of knowing someone, you know, the, those are legitimate, I think, expressions. Sometimes we need the right emotion to move us towards the dominion mandate. We need to be reminded of the abortion holocaust. We need to be reminded of statism. We need to be reminded day in, day out of God's sovereignty over that. We need to be reminded of these things so that we can focus our attention on the things that God has put before us. And lastly, God made us in his image, which means that our worship, the worship and glory that he wants from us should be passion, passionate. See, the Stoics, they believed in what we call apatheia in Greek. It just literally means without passion. Their aim, as we touched on in week one, was to reach this state of mind where, wherein the passions would be tamed and set aside. Don't feel joyful. Don't feel depressed. Just stuff it. However, we know that contrary, contrary to this erroneous view of emotion, God, God desires that we desire. God longs for our longing, not because he lacks anything, but because he is the greatest good, and we should get excited about that prospect. The title of this message is Emotional Baggage Fees, and I chose the name because I want to make sure that we deal with all the ways that we fall short in our emotional experience, experiences. So, for example, sometimes we find ourselves in a state of denial. I'm going to give you a bunch here. Denial. I can't possibly feel upset about this situation. After all, it's not my burden to carry. So we're in denial about how we feel. What about minimizing how you feel? I don't need to feel that bad about it. You minimize your, your feelings. Don't cry. Crying's for girls. That's not helpful. Right? Men cry. We should cry a lot. (laughs) What about blaming? Blaming others for your emotions. Well, it was really her fault anyway. Or what about rationalizing or intellectualizing your emotions? Right? I, I shouldn't feel this way. After all, there's a logical reason for why this happened. So we just brush it off to the mind. What about distracting, dealing with your emotions by distracting yourself? Well, I'm not going to let myself feel this way, so I'll keep myself busy doing something else. What about overreacting or being hostile, right? I feel betrayed, so I'm going to pay this person back. We call that emotion revenge or vengeance. What about projection, right? In my bitterness towards this person, I'm going to choose to believe that she hates me and doesn't like me when you're the one that's bitter. So you're projecting that bitterness on somebody else. See, all of these reactions, let's just say it, lack maturity, They lack maturity, and that's because they lack self-control, the foundational principle of all government. See, one of the greatest ways to exhibit self-control is to stop and ask the question, what does God require of me in this moment? We've talked about that. I know Aaron a lot. What does God require of me in this moment right now? How does God want me to think right now? How does God want me to feel right now? What, What is or are my current emotion or emotions telling me about me? Maybe I'm being selfish, right? What is, what is or are my current emotion or emotions telling me about my view of God? What are my emotions telling me about my view of my call to love my neighbor? See, if we can ask this and respond accordingly, you'll have the ability to see clearly and respond in godly ways. And make no mistake, self-control is absolutely at the center of all of this. God wants us to respond to things emotionally. He responds to things emotionally perfectly 
But it has to be the correct emotion, not the wrong one. Which is to say we're supposed to be emotionally healthy and mature people. See, in order to deal with all the baggage fees, right, and, and, and their desultory wandering about inflicting harm on ourselves and inflicting harm on other people, we have to remember that we must grow up. We have to grow up. All of us in this room need to grow up. We have to love God with our mind, our body, our soul, our strength, our emotions, Deuteronomy 6, right? God wants us to be mature, exhibiting emotionally healthy patterns that reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that emotion is anger. Other times it's pure joy. Either way, the emotion is to be healthy, ethically pure, and in line with the Scriptures. So let me tell you what being emotionally healthy looks like, and you can assess yourself. Emotionally and mature, healthy health, I should say, looks like this. Articulating your thoughts and feelings honestly, clearly, directly, and humbly. Articulating your thoughts, your feelings honestly, not minimizing them, hiding them, but honestly expressing them, right? Um, Being clear, being direct, and being humble about it. It looks like you taking responsibility for your thoughts, taking responsibility for your emotions, and taking responsibility for your actions or inaction, as it were. Um, Being mature and health, emotionally healthy looks like um, under stress and consternation, you are able to say what you mean and mean what you say without being an adversarial jerk. See, being a spirit-filled, emotionally healthy person means considering others and what they're saying and they're not saying before you respond and react. This requires you having an empathetic disposition without jumping to conclusions, respecting them enough to hear the person out without trying to manage them, to discredit them, to put them down before you react, before you respond. Right? That's, I think Gary Norris said that once. Profound. Very, very simple. Don't, never react, always act. See, emotional health is tied to physical health. Are you eating correctly? Are you getting exercise? Or would you just rather you know, give yourself over to sloth and laziness all the time? You should know what your body needs. You are the best doctor, frankly. Because we all know how corrupt and status the medical industry is. But you should know. You should be exploring. You should be learning about your body, how your, what your body needs and what it doesn't need. And, and find ways to, to be physically healthy. But why? Because we're whole people and it affects your emotions. See, emotionally healthy people are people who are in tune with all of these things that I just described to the degree that they live comfortably in the will of God, secure in their identity in Christ, walking day by day, patiently waiting on the Lord. Now listen, despite the impressive suffering that Jeremiah had to endure, he had the sense and the maturity to keep all of those emotions in check for the end of the glory of God, right? At the very end of Lamentations, if you have it open, look at it, but... He called to mind, and therefore he had hope. He said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Instead of being emotionally tossed about, wait on the Lord. In your joy and in your depression, 
in your happiness and in your sadness, in your anger and your frustration, all of it, God doesn't move. He is immovable. So in all of our emotional despondency, the highs and the lows, we can trust the Lordship of Christ in and over our emotions. See, the new heavens and the new earth, think about this, one final thought. The new heavens and the new earth isn't going to be a place where our emotions are eradicated. It's going to be an experience where our emotions are completely and freely and perfectly, you might say, expressed. And the cross of Christ is certainly sufficient to restore us to himself. And the us most assuredly includes all of our obstinate emotions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray, God, that that we would take the practicality of of your word, the practical um, teaching that's contained therein, and, and actually do something with it and learn from it. We know that we are, in large part, complex creatures, but in another sense, we're very simple, too. You have given us the pattern for sanctification, the path to holiness, the, 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 um, the purpose of our lives being the glory of, of God. And so we pray that we would consider that. We pray that you would help us to be mature, to grow, to deal with things in emotionally healthy ways, to deal with ourselves in emotionally healthy ways, and certainly each other. Let me ask this and pray. God, for the sake of your kingdom and the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.